Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. My name is Emily Friedlander, and you're listening to episode 16 of the Thump Podcast. Every week, we bring together a panel of Thump editors and friends to discuss the people and stories shaping contemporary nightlife. This month, Thump is honoring Pride with a celebration of LGBTQ nightlife all across America. Today, we'll be discussing some of the stories from the series, including an op-ed by Rose Damu about what it really means when we call a party a queer party, some little-known destinations for LGBTQ nightlife across the U.S., and America's burgeoning gay square dancing subculture. Do you all want to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Rose Damu. I'm a double cancer, Taurus Rising, and I'm a DJ and self-proclaimed international party girl. Hi, I'm Colin Joyce. I'm Thump's managing editor. I'm Michelle Luke, features editor, Capricorn Aquarius Cusp. I'm Emily Friedlander, Thump's editor-in-chief, and I am a Pisces, and I don't remember my rising sign. (laughs) And I'm Ezra Marcus, the associate editor. So, Rose, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We really enjoyed your op-ed about how not all parties that are being billed as queer parties are actually living up to the full idea of what it means to be queer. Do you want to talk a little bit about the distinction you were trying to make? The distinction I was trying to make with this piece was that in 2017, we've reached this point where our understanding of queerness has reached its sort of peak, maybe. A lot of people feel ownership of it, but it doesn't necessarily apply to all of the things that people use it to describe. Queerness has become this self-identifier for people who fall on the LGBT spectrum, but it means something more than just someone's sexuality or gender identity. It has political implications, it has social implications, and while queer people are creating nightlife, nightlife is not necessarily queer just because it's being produced by people who fall on the LGBT spectrum. And as someone who works in a sector of nightlife that is more 
underground and more diverse, I was seeing parties that were calling themselves queer or using you know, any number of queer buzzwords or sort of aesthetic identifiers, but were still structurally being made up primarily of cisgender white gay men and were not actually representative of the entire spectrum of LGBTQ individuals. I think what really attracted me to the story when you first pitched it was, yeah, I agree that queer has become such a buzzword these days. And when we try to define what queer means, we actually found so many different definitions that I realized that it's really hard to define what queerness means in like one succinct sentence. And part of the reason I think is, you know, the word queer itself has evolved over time. It used to be obviously a slur back in like the 1900s when people would be like, oh, he's a queer. And it would be like a very negative thing and used to persecute people. And then in the 70s, it was sort of reclaimed by LGBT activists during the gay rights movement, but it was still pretty much synonymous for gay. So, you know, there was this popular chant, which we mentioned in the piece, we're here, we're queer, which we use a lot, like Stonewall and stuff like that. But today, I feel like the word queer has evolved again, and it's almost been re-reclaimed by academics and social activists to mean something more that is like in opposition to, you know, heteronormativity, the patriarchy. It's just, as you said in the piece, it's a choice to live outside of these norms. And it's nothing to do necessarily with whether you're gay or straight or whatever, it's more just a choice. Can you maybe tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, I think an important part of that is that, you know, going back to that chant, like the end part of that chant was, we're here, we're queer, get used to it. And I think the thing is, in 2017, gayness, we have gotten used to it. (laughs) You know, like, Will and Grace is coming back to TV 20 (laughs) years after it premiered, and it's not shocking to have gay people represented in that kind of media. But queerness, there is a whole spectrum of people who fall somewhere under the moniker of being LGBT who aren't represented in media, in their mainstream gay communities necessarily. And so they, we, I mean, I guess as a trans woman, I can call, I can say we, um, queerness is a way for us to set ourselves apart from a patriarchal society. I mean, obviously, in 2017, when we have a president who, you know, believes in conversion therapy, when gay people are, you know, being imprisoned in Chechnya, it's it's not necessarily safe to be gay anywhere in the world, but it is more normalized today. Being queer, being a person of color, being trans, being gender nonconforming, those things are still not, you know, readily accepted by mainstream society. And I think being queer is a choice to say, there is something about me, something about my identity that sets me apart from the rest of the world. And I'm going to choose to make that something I'm proud of. And I think that choice is where queerness lies. 
You also have a great line in the piece that I like that was like, queerness is where the personal becomes political. I'm curious if you think that queer people are also opposed to perhaps gay norms in addition to cis-hetero norms. I think that we're seeing that there is increasingly becoming an overlap between gay norms and cis-hetero norms. There are a lot of gay people who choose to completely subsume themselves into cis-hetero society. And I think choosing to identify as queer is making this very bold statement that you're not going to do that. Do you think that straight people can be queer? <sighs> That's a tricky one. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't necessarily think that you can be... Um, Oh, that's that's really hard to say. And actually, since the piece has come out, that's kind of a question that some people have raised. I think you can identify as heterosexual and maybe be queer politically. I think you can be an ally. But I think a part of queerness is falling somewhere on the LGBTQIA plus scale. I'm curious, how do you organize a party around that idea of queerness then? I think that comes down to structure. And that that is a big part of the inspiration behind this piece was that I was seeing parties that wanted to brand themselves as queer without putting in the work to actually employ queer people. I think a party being queer means booking people of color, booking trans people, booking gender non-conforming people, booking disabled people, so that people who are coming to that party, queer people who are coming to that party, see themselves reflected in the lineup. Sure. And in staffing in the venue and stuff, yeah. too. I think that's super important. Yeah, because I get, I get asked a lot about this idea of safe space, and I think that's one of these queer buzzwords that I think gets thrown out a lot. And right, just saying something is a safe space just doesn't, doesn't make it a safe space. Yeah, and in nightlife especially, very few spaces can be safe. I mean, if you're having a party in a club, I don't think it can ever really be a safe space because any party, any nightlife endeavor is at the end of the day a capitalist endeavor and is based around money. And spaces can't be safe if they're cost prohibitive, if they're staffed by security who might antagonize queer people, um, if they are filled with other club goers who might antagonize queer people. Yeah, I don't know if safe space really exists. But I think in rave culture, we talk a lot about utopian ideals and visions of you know, a better future. It's kind of ingrained into the culture. In a way, I think queer and safe spaces are sort of similar in that they're both utopian ideals that encompass like a perfect future. But even if they aren't able to become a reality, it's still a worthwhile thing to envision. Completely. I, I used to run an art collective, the Culture Horror. A couple times a year, we would throw these large-scale uh, warehouse parties, and the point of them was always to create a space for one night that attempted to sort of 
exist outside reality and imagine what a perfect queer utopian world could look like. Not to say this party is a perfect queer world, but to show people maybe like what that could look like and give them ideas about how to bring that back to their everyday life. And I think you guys came pretty close. Like, I remember walking into some of your parties and it'd be like five in the morning and like uh, you had those curtains in the front. So you'd kind of like walk through curtains and then you'd see this like wonderland of, you know, queer freaks Mm -hmm. and there'd be like drag queens and just all kinds of people there and going till really late. And yeah, to me, it was pretty damn close. And I think that word freak is like a really important word when it comes to understanding what queerness is. I think that people who identify as queers, like for the most part, are proud freaks. I know I am. Right. I'm curious if there are like any, uh, we actually talked a little bit about this before the podcast, but I'm curious if you feel like there are any parties ongoing that you feel like are doing this right or like striving to do this right. Yeah. My friends run this party space out of their home called Casa Diva and the people who live there are all queer people and their parties really center femme, trans, non-binary people. Um, The parties are run by a trans woman, Charlene uh, Incarnate, who's a really incredible drag performance artist. I think people like Lady Fag and Suzanne Barsh do a really good job of centering femmes in nightlife. Lady Fag especially with Battle Hymn, like, you know, Honey Dijon is one of the residents and is a trans woman, I think is like one of the best DJs working in New York City right now. And, you know, there are smaller things like around the city. I go to a lot of cool queer house parties. I think people doing the work to try to maybe pull nightlife out of mainstream mainstream clubs is going in the right direction totally yeah i mean talking about creating like a utopian world all it takes is like one asshole to shatter that like to to ruin what you're trying to create completely when it's in a private space and you have a little bit more control over the environment and i think that that like goes a long way for yeah i mean when i was throwing raves i would regularly you know like go by the door and if there were people who were coming in who i could tell off the bat were assholes i would just tell them to leave i have no problem doing that and if they got mad i would just say it's my party totally i feel like there's not a culture of doing that in new york in the same way everybody feels entitled if if they like have their $15 in their hand, they're getting in the door. But that's not the, I mean, that's never been the way that it's been in the club world. That just seems to be the way attitudes have gone. And that, I think, comes a lot down to putting queer people in structural positions of power in nightlife so that we can be the ones making those decisions about who gets in and who doesn't. And at that point, it's not like it is at a club where it's about, you know, status or wealth. It's about, are you part of the community? Right. I also want to shout out my friend Kim Ann's party tendencies over on the West Coast, as well as Club Chai, who's run by two female DJs. Both of these parties are very much for women, femme, trans, non-binary people. And again, like you said, they're both run by women. And I think that's extremely important. We touched on this a little bit, but I'm also like working on this piece for some of our Pride Week coverage that's about how to create environments at parties that are welcoming to non-binary people especially because I think that for other issues of queerness it becomes a little more like self-evident how to do things the right way but um, I think that 
there are just so many subconscious ways that nightlife becomes gendered. Completely. One of the things we used to do at culture horror parties was, I remember one time we were getting ready to start the night and we had two security guards. One was male and one was female. And I found out that they were splitting people up in the lines and one security guard was patting down people who they perceived as male and one was patting down people who they perceived as male and I immediately put a stop to that and the guard who started doing that we let the space know that we never wanted to work with them again yeah it's terrible because the, the, they think that they're doing the right thing like like deep down they think that they're doing yeah. something that's going to like pre- prevent like bad behavior but it's something that just like subconsciously can, I don't know, it can ruin somebody's night. Totally. Or like an MC saying ladies and gentlemen when they're announcing performances to an audience, you know, like there's there's no reason to do that. You know, there's no reason to assumptively gender anyone. It's funny, right? Like going to festivals these days when I have to line up in the female bathroom, I get mad. <laughs> I'm like, it's 2017. Like, why do we still have gendered bathrooms? And yeah. it's funny how it changes so quickly because even like two, three years ago, I would never would have questioned this. And every time I hear ladies and gentlemen now, I'm going to think of it a different way. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. And you know, the, another thing you can do with bathrooms is like wh- whenever I used to go into a space and, the, you know, it would say like, boys and girls or whatever on the bathrooms we would just cover that up and say like toilets and urinals like yeah. there are little things you can do that just make people feel safer and welcome what were some strategies colin that you were going to write about for non-binary inclusivity specifically? Well, Rose already hit on a couple of them, um, making sure that there are, are non-gendered bathrooms available at any space, I think is like a key thing. And something that's definitely been in the conversation over the last couple of years is having like any sort of welcoming party, but especially if you're throwing a party that's like geared toward the queer community, I think you just like have to have that. And there are so many places that I don't see that, you know? It just is like a sad reality. And then, yeah, not having door staff gender people or even at the bar. Like, I don't know. It's so, there's so many places, especially, I don't know, I grew up in the South. There's so many places where you immediately get called sir or ma'am. And there's no, there's no in-between there. And people are trying to be polite or whatever. And it can just like throw you off for the rest of the day. Yeah, I mean, it still happens to me, like at parties that I work where I, you know, will walk up to the bar to get a drink and get and it's like what's up man what can I get you (laughs) and I'm like I'm here with my fucking tits out and makeup on and I mean not that that should make anyone assume anyone's gender but I feel like that leads again it's like structurally like if you are throwing a party that queer people are coming to you should at the very least be having these conversations with your staff about what is and is not acceptable because language, especially, is such an important thing when we talk about queer people and the ways in which language can hurt people or make them feel more welcomed. Totally. And one of the other things, and this is something that you hinted at, too, is like I've seen a lot of parties pop up that are trying to like uplift women and non-binary people, and then they don't actually book any non-binary people. That like kills me to see that. That just like can't happen. Don't do that. <laughs> the only difficulty with that as we came across ourselves and working on um, these pieces was like how if you want to book non-binary people, how do you 
no, because you don't want to presumptively gender somebody. That was like something that we were wondering about too. Yeah, and that's very tricky. And and the thing is, like, we have all these questions, but we don't necessarily have answers for all of them. But that's why these conversations are important. I guess they're like little clues sometimes. Like I remember when I wrote about Club Chai, the party that I mentioned earlier on the West Coast, they actually sent me a PDF with all of the pronouns that every artist that they've booked or released music from uses. And I've never had that happen to me before. It was so cool. And, you know, it goes to be, it's pretty obvious if someone is using they, them, they're probably gender nonforming. That's amazing. Yeah. It, the, talking about a utopian world, I just feel like it should be, it should be able to be possible. It just like everybody needs to like ask more questions and like be open to understanding. And, and like when you get corrected on things, just correct, just like fix that within yourself. I don't know. I think that that's all it takes. Totally. Well, I mean, you know, one of the first steps to making queer people feel safer and trans people and gender nonconforming people is like just ask people what their pronouns are. It's so easy and that's one of the ways in which trans and gender nonconforming people get hurt the most and you could literally just ask them when when you meet them. I feel like because we're based in New York and most of our writers are in New York, London and LA, we often think of the middle of America as a place where uh, this stuff doesn't happen, but it actually... Just because we're not there. Just because we're not there and we don't see it and we're blinded by Facebook to people from other places and other walks of life. And I think that in this time, it's probably more important than ever to realize that there are communities everywhere Um, and to recognize and uplift the hard work that they're doing. It's a lot of work, obviously, uh, but we, for Pride this month, we did spotlights on four different cities. So Ezra, obviously there are a lot of cities to talk about, but you ended up, with the help of your other associate editor, David Garber, picking out four to start with. Um, What were the cities that you went with? We did. uh, Those four cities were Salt Lake City, Milwaukee, Pittsburgh and New Orleans. Cool. And I know that we are just starting the series now as we record this, and we started with Salt Lake City. I was really touched by that piece to see like how much was going on there, uh, despite the city's uh, reputation for being a Mormon city. Right. It's I think it's something that a lot of people assume about Salt Lake City is that because the Mormon church is such a large presence there that it must be necessarily a conservative city and in many ways it is but it also at the same time has a very progressive LGBTQ dance scene that's been going on for many years that has like people of all genders people who are like really invested in putting on like cool events have like venues there's one annual party they do called the bunny hop that's been going on for a long time that Jesse Walker, who was the person who David spoke to about Salt Lake City scene, has been involved with throwing for a long time. It's an Easter themed party. An Easter themed party, yeah. <laughs> it just seems like it's, you know, that despite the conservative church, that doesn't mean that they aren't finding ways to express themselves. Salt Lake City has a huge um, pride scene. There's like a huge pride event and there's all these events based around that. So yeah. And it's, you know, it's it's very much like focused on 
at least, at least like, a, a lot of the scene there is very focused on dance music. They book a lot of like cool DJs. Like I mean, he, he mentioned um, Stacy Kid, Shay Damier, just like a lot of people are coming into the scene. Yeah, I have friends from Salt Lake City, and and I knew that about them having like a huge pride thing that happens there. And I've always wondered what the like structural reasons for that is like why Salt Lake City I, I wonder if it's geographic well, like simply because it's the only big city in like kind of an area w- devoid of other large cities yeah. Wait, the structural reasons for there being a big scene yeah, yeah why would I like, mean this is why totally of all places it's totally speculation but I would imagine that since a lot of other places in the area are extremely rural and not at all progressive that a lot of people would flock to Salt Lake City. That's what the person we spoke to described. He, he moved there in his early 20s, old, yeah. something like that, yeah. in order to spread his wings in the big city. And I bet also in a place like that where there is such a like conservative culture in the air, it would make anything that is progressive and open-minded go off that much harder. Completely. That's what I was going to add. I've found that these pockets around the country and around the world where you see these vibrant undergrounds are usually in the places where they're needed the most. Mm -hmm. And in a city with such a a conservative religious presence, you know, queer people like really creating spaces like that could be seen as very reactionary to that. That's something that the person I spoke to from Pittsburgh also described that the area around Pittsburgh and many places within Metro Pittsburgh are very conservative. But, you know, he moved from like a cons- small conservative rural town in the area to Pittsburgh when he was young. And he found a community of like minded people who are just basically doing that as a way to like find a way to survive. Seems like it's a something that definitely doesn't get covered enough just because like how many people who are covering things ever make it out to these cities. But despite the lack of coastal hype it doesn't seem like there's any sign of these places slowing down having like really exciting events and it's it's cool also that something that i've noticed is that there's almost like a network of exchange between a lot of these cities for example the person i spoke to from new orleans mentioned a drag queen by the name of neon burgundy who has been doing her thing in the city for a long time and then Actually, the person who spoke to from Pittsburgh had recently booked them there because it's just this cultural exchange between these cities that are kind of like in parts of the country that aren't normally getting talked about as much. There is a huge underground network of queer people. You brought up New Orleans. I was actually just there for Mardi Gras. And there is this really thriving queer underground there that's made up, I think, especially in New Orleans, more than a lot of other places, of a lot of people who sort of come and go from these different cities around the country and there is a lot more of a network than there is in like a big coastal city where you don't really need to look outside your city for that kind of network because it already exists there Mm -hmm. and I think also part of that is economics I mean New Orleans is a really cheap city to live and work relatively which I think has allowed it to become a hub for people who move around a lot and that's enabled it to become kind of this like focal point for these DJs and drag queens and performers who play all around the country at these parties that kind of serve as like hubs. And another big party that I think 
that was hot mass in Pitch- in Pittsburgh, which seems like, you know, that's one of those parties that everybody involved in this sort of network will play at when they're touring. What about the last city? Milwaukee. Yeah, Milwaukee's another one. Uh, Milwaukee actually has a really cool scene for, like, I guess we would probably have to call it, like, club music with kind of a noise edge to it, sort of like experimental club music. There's a lot of that going on in Milwaukee, which is, a lot of that is thrown by. Midwest noise. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like, again, like in the Midwest, all these cities have kind of exchanged with each other, and like people can play all around at Midwest gigs and maybe never even like break out on the coasts, but they don't really need to because like they're kind of playing at all these like associated events in cities like Cleveland and Milwaukee and Pittsburgh and Ann Arbor. Are there any other scenes that anybody here is familiar with that are worth calling out? Yeah, I'm pretty plugged into the radical fairy community, which overlaps a lot with this sort of underground queer community. And there are definitely pockets of queer people in cities like Asheville. Atlanta has a really big queer dance scene. I think Detroit also, there's a crew called Macho City that we met when we were out there for movement. Seems like they do some really cool stuff. I grew up in Florida, as did Rose. Mm -hmm. Um, And we were talking before the the place that I grew up in, like the Tampa, St. Pete area, what underground queer community that exists is kind of like folded in within the other underground scenes. Like So like the hardcore scene and the noise scenes that exist are also in a way the queer scenes that happen there just because, and Rose actually made this point to me that because it's like a smaller place for those events to be sustainable, it's kind of just like everybody has to get behind them, like all the freaks. Yeah, the same sort of thing I found exists in New Orleans where the queer scene and the punk scenes really overlap. When I was there for Mardi Gras, there was on Mardi Gras day, some friends of mine were in this band special interest through a party show in a gas station parking lot. and. It was a lot of queer people, but also a lot of punk people. And sort of down there, like, that distinction line is very fuzzy. That sounds cool. After talking to Mark from New Orleans, I just wanted to visit as soon as possible. Mark. Mark Loke. Yeah. Oh, my God. I saw him DJ while I was there. He's so good. Yeah. Father figure is his DJ name. Yeah. He's amazing. Yeah, he was talking about these warehouse parties they throw that are just like sound like totally off the chain. They really are. There's this place where a lot of people throw parties there, Castillo Blanco, and it was like honestly one of the coolest spaces I've ever been to. And there's a lot of really cool house parties there. And one of the things I really loved about the queer scene there was that it was so femme. A lot of queer femmes, a lot of trans people, a lot of lesbians, a lot less nightlife that is centered around cis white gay men. We also this week are doing a little close up on a very specific dancing subculture in the US that 
actually has multiple chapters in multiple cities, which is a gay square dancing subculture. Khan, you spoke to one of the former chapter heads of the New York chapter? We had a freelancer, yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is the International Association of Gay Square Dance Clubs, which has been around since like the early 80s. The New York chapter is Times Squares, which doesn't actually happen in Times Square. It might have at some point, but... I love a good pun name. Yeah. <laughs> uh, So, yeah, our freelancer spoke to a former president. He was the president for a couple years in the 90s and then again in 2014. I think it's a president not in like a like a CEO kind of way, but president in like a like I was elected president of like the student government kind of way. And I don't know, the, the guy was saying that that role is like basically making like a community spirit for these sorts of events, like kind of like making everyone feel like they're welcome. It's kind of like it seems like the role that a host plays at a party is what the president of the square dance club does at square dancing so anyway uh yeah so the, the the history of lgbtq square dancing stretches actually back to the mid 70s in miami um of all miami. places That's, of course florida florida is the weirdest <laughs> yep place in the world yep yep so uh it's widely accepted that the like first uh gay square dancing club was a group called the miami mustangs That's and hot. I think it, they were just, there, there's no like stated reason for why they formed. I think it was just kind of like people who had a similar interest. And also square dancing is really big in Florida in general. There are like lots of actual square dancing clubs that, but it's kind of like a bro-y vibe, like where you might like, I don't know, where a frat bro might like ironically take a date or something. So people with, I think people with similar interests just gravitated toward one another. The New York one started in 1984 and David Campbell, he said that part of what drew people to the New York one was that it was kind of a response to the AIDS crisis for this group of people that were initially involved with it. They wanted like a way to go out that wasn't centered around alcohol, that wasn't centered around doing drugs, that was just kind of like a way to like go and have fun with their friends in a place that like didn't necessarily draw them toward what people saw as like risk factors for Mm. that sort of thing. So I don't know what to make of that exactly, but it seems like it's always been like geared as like a wholesome nightlife alternative (laughs) and probably is. So gay square dancing is actually like exactly the same as like straight square dancing, like in terms of like how it works, there's a partnered pair, but in straight square dancing, it's like very gendered, like the men dance a specific part and the women dance a specific part. But in the history of LGBTQ square dancing, you just learn a specific part of the dance and it doesn't matter like which one is which. There's a funny moment where David Campbell was saying that like a lot of these people, because the square dancing community is so small now and, and a lot of the people are older, a lot of square dancers across the country will go to like the straight square dancing events too. And he said that no one really gets uncomfortable except if a man is dancing the quote-unquote girls part, then you have to, like, twirl, like, a 200-pound man. And they said that can, like, freak out some of the, like, 70-year-olds in cowboy hats that are doing it. I don't know. It, it seems like it's really... There's all sorts of ways that queer community building has happened over the years. And I think that this is, like, a really strong reminder of that, that, like, everybody finds their thing. Is the music gayer than at a normal so <laughs> square dance? I actually don't know what normal square dancing music is, but the, the music that's referenced in this is totally wild. The freelancer, when he went to this Times Square's thing, he said that the music stretched from Eiffel 65 to Drowning Pool to Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weenie 
yellow polka dot bikini. I mean, that's an, <laughs> it's a great track. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but, like, I don't know how you would square dance to any of that. None of that strikes me as, like... <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Um, but, so, maybe? like. <laughs> yeah, like, I would assume they'd be playing, like, some, some like, Joanne, you know, like... Right, <laughs> right. Recent, very recent Lady Gaga. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I... I it seems just like really fun and really like he said he said that most of the crowd seemed to be like 40s or older and that and David Campbell said that he's seen the club totally dwindle in size over the years where he said when it first started it was like close to 900 members and now it's close to 90 <laughs> so i mean it's it's small but the people that are there it's like what they do they travel around the country to conventions i wonder if the people who are drawn to it are from regions of the country that have a lot of square dancing or if it's like a urbane curiosity right. of sort of like fetishizing yeah it's like novelty yeah i think it totally it it totally depends like cuz the new york chapter is one of the bigger ones but they literally are all over the country if you I'll have to like put a link to the list in in the post about the podcast because there's just so many of these like clubs and and they vary in size from like a dozen to like near 100 and <laughs> they all convene on conventions and like fly in together and and people like fly around the country to go to these square dancing events just because it's like what they've always done well there are a lot of queer hicks i can tell you that (laughs) from experience you've been listening to the thump podcast a production of vice media and thump i wanted to shout out tim barnes who engineers and edits the thump podcast you can find him on twitter at Tim Barnes 451. We'd also like to shout out Lorna Dune, who made the music for this podcast and whose music can be heard at lornadune.bandcamp.com. If you'd like to read some of the stories we've been talking about, please log on to our website, thump.vice.com. You can also follow us on social media over at twitter.com slash thumpthump or facebook.com slash thumpthump. Do you all want to let people know where they can follow your goings on? Yeah. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, SoundCloud, Facebook. Everything is the same handle. It's at Dream Girl, and that's no I and five R's. <laughs> My DJ name is Dream. Cool. I'm on Twitter at Outa Sight Outa. I'm on Twitter at Ezra underscore Mark. I'm on Twitter at Ad Hoc Emily. If you'd like what you've heard, please rate and subscribe on iTunes. Ratings help, but word of mouth is the primary way that we get this out there. Have a good one. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Manny's and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. 
Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies.